Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Previously on There Goes the Neighborhood. This is a phenomenon that everybody sees, everybody feels, but somehow isn't in the center of the discussion where it needs to be. I am, of course, talking about gentrification. The city actually has been in what is legally known as a housing emergency for decades. I'm not ready to sell. I am ready to sell yet, and I need them to leave me alone. He said, well, I came to offer you some money. If you move by this certain amount of time, I'm going to give you $5,000. I said, you are out of your mind. You have felt and bumped your head. They will invite themselves in your home and present themselves as your friend. We live on Barbie as family. We all there for each other. When we built the middle class in this country, we made decisions about who was going to benefit. And we decided black people weren't a part of that. When everybody gave up on the neighborhood, we didn't. We stood in the neighborhood. We worked it out, and we made it the better place that everybody wants to invest into now. There goes the neighborhood. There goes the neighborhood. There goes the neighborhood. I'm Kai Wright. I'm an editor at The Nation magazine. And today, my WNYC colleagues and I sit down and think about what we have learned over these past eight, nine weeks of talking about this. And we start with a really strong piece of tape that we got from one of our listeners. I don't think race has anything to do with it. I basically think it's all about greed and money. Real estate people and people with money see the opportunity to make more money, to make more money than they have, where they can have people move out and raise the rents and get the rent they're asking for after they build or remodeled or renovate buildings that used to be affordable. So we have the whole team here in the studio. Rebecca Carroll, who is one of the reporters and producers on the project, how do you react to what you've heard there? I don't think that you can actually separate race and money. I think that the folks who are in a position to get the money that they want or raise the rent or, as this fellow was talking about, are by and large people in positions of power and wealth. And those people are mostly white people and they prey on on folks who are vulnerable. And in this country and in this society and the way that we have built this system, it is inherently racist. So I don't think that you can separate the two. There's also something in that that you've talked about that there's this irony of if you can't separate money and race and we see who's getting pushed out, therefore are people who are vulnerable and black – There's an irony to the moment we're in in Brooklyn and in our culture around black folks that that's what's happening. Help me understand what you mean by that. Yeah, and and I think the phrase that you use is that we are culturally ascending. You know, right now from Ta-Nehisi Coates to Black Lives Matter to Beyonce to, you know, black folks right now are making extraordinary cultural uh, presentations and moments. And, you know, it's not just pop culture. It's intellectual culture. It providing something that is so center and central to the cultural conversation. And it's just crazy to me that we have all of this power 
and that people are listening and watching, and yet we're still sort of the ones who are getting kicked to the curb in this gentrification phenomenon. Though another piece of tape I think we're going to listen to here is uh, picks up a topic that we've heard throughout the podcast, that it's kind of complicated also, even amongst people of color and black people, about how we feel about this process and this moment. It's funny, though. I was in a bodega recently, and, and uh, this woman was actually really given a gentrification rant and how, you know, people are the devil and all this kind of stuff, and, and they shouldn't be in this neighborhood. And she could tell she was a, definitely a renter who's, you know— getting kicked out where her friend was saying, I love it, you know, the more the merrier. And she could tell her friend was the owner of a house, you know. So it's kind of like my property value just went up. Another person we have here we have not heard from in this podcast yet is our sound engineer, Casey Means, who has been with us in all of these interviews and talking to other people about it as well. And Casey, you've gotten some some surprising insights about the way people feel about this process. Yeah, I met this one guy, we were talking about the gentrification of our neighborhood. I live in Prospect Lefferts Gardens, and I was very surprised to find out his opinion on it. I was telling him that I was disappointed, that it's changed so much, and that I don't recognize it how I used to. And he was thrilled. Um, he is a longtime resident, a black owner of one of the houses really close to me. And it was just this opposition of what I expected the conversation to be. You know, normally me being a young white man, you would think that I would be like all about the coffee shop and the new awesome gourmet grocery store when in fact I'm the one that wants to go to the roti shop and enjoy the culture that it has. And he is so stoked about the new environment that we're in. And more and more people that I've talked to, you just don't know what their viewpoint is based on the assumptions that you would have about who they are in their neighborhood. And Jim O'Grady, this is a point you have made as you've been reporting this podcast as well. You've been shocked by how, how we can't understand people in monoliths. Yeah. Kai, I wasn't exactly surprised that not everyone in one group thinks the same way. But I was constantly reminded of this. I think maybe we all were that in every neighborhood, there's a number of groups jockeying around and you can – divide these groups by race, by income level, by old-timers, newcomers. And there's a wild diversity of views, actually, in each of these groups. For example, this guy, Reg Wins, he's black. He's a real estate broker. He grew up in Fort Greene. He's now in Clinton Hill. He's just a lover of Brooklyn. And he was talking to me about how he and his black friends have the completely opposite reaction when a new, call it a hipster bar, opens up in central Brooklyn. Some of his friends are like, no way, that place is not for me. Because in their mind, it's not for me. Oh, this is some hipster spot. This is some newbie spot. I'm not going in there. I'm more like, I'm really going in here because I'm curious. I want to see the decor. I want to see what they're selling. I want to see what's going on. You know, and they're not gonna, you're not going to okey-doke me. I know that a stout is a stout. I know, you know what I mean? I know when I ask for a wine list, don't tell me about Robert Mondavi and Yellowtail. I want to hear about grapes. Like, I've traveled, I know. And that, that's I love that. That kind of reminds me of when we were walking around with Monica Bailey in, in Bed-Stuy, where she's lived for more than 30 years, and she showed us the fancy French restaurant across from the Royal Crown Chicken just to say, check this out. And I asked her, so would you ever eat in the French restaurant? And paraphrasing, she said, no, I'm not going to eat in that French restaurant. But if I wanted to, I better be welcome. 
at the same time, she did say that she considered it an absurdity and that it wasn't there for her. And I think that in that we see the range of reaction. Rebecca, you actually reported on this in one of our episodes, this question of who is it for? I love that Reg is like, I'm really going in there. But that doesn't mean that he feels like it's for him. It means in a way that he's pushing back on the assumption that it's not for him. He said, I'm not going to be okey-doked, which, you know, is like these kind of bars and restaurants. And there's a certain way that the staff, the presentation, the aesthetic greets black folks and black residents. And he's getting out ahead of that. So I think that in Monica too, which is like, I'm going in there. And I spoke to, you know, a lot of, of folks who said, I feel like I should be able to go anywhere. I feel like everything is for me, you know, but, you know, I'm an American. I belong here too, but um, not always, you know, not always. But like I said, everything is for me and just like it's for everyone else. This was a young black woman who I talked to in Williamsburg. And this goes back to what I was saying about this moment in time when the contrast is so stark of most young black folks are feeling that it is a time to be alive. And yet they're still faced with the reality of cafes, restaurants not being targeted to them as customers. Particularly in a place like Brooklyn that is so steeped in black culture. So we've been talking here so far about really how we negotiate as people around this process. There's also the question of how the policymakers and the politics have negotiated around this process. And Jim, we talked early on in this podcast as a team about whether or not you could actually affect change. One of the things you've been surprised by is that it seems like there has been some change. Yeah, we talked about is gentrification inevitable? And if so, can you alter it? to some extent, particularly by activism and political action. And I think with the de Blasio rezoning plan, we saw that you could to some extent. So I spoke to Vicki Bean of Housing Preservation and Development outside a hearing at City Hall about the plan where a lot of residents from East New York objected to this plan. And here's what she said about that. What people are not seeing is what they are afraid of is happening. Rents right now, the asking rents in East New York are way above the affordable rents that we will provide in the affordable housing. So what we saw was this grand negotiation over the specs of this rezoning where activists in East New York in particular pushed back and agitated for more affordable units for people of lower income. And they got more of it. Now, they will say they didn't get enough, but they definitely got more of what they were asking for. And they're going to get something like $240 million invested in their neighborhood, which was a lot more than City Hall wanted to give them at first. So there has been actual change. D.W. Gibson, who reported a great deal of the podcast as well. D.W., you also covered a lot of the policy and the developers in particular on this. Did you see change? Indeed. I take Jim's point that there has been some change. That said, I think there are some things that surprise me in the way that there's been a lack of change, and that is precisely with impunity uh, for developers in their bad behavior. We talk to lawyers who are dealing with tenant cases all the time from Brooklyn Legal Services and South Brooklyn Legal Services. And it seems like since de Blasio has taken office, the nefarious activity of landlords has almost increased. I mean, this idea of destroying your building to get rent-stabilized tenants out of the building has only accelerated in the last couple of years. And there has been 
almost zero, very close to zero action against these landlords in terms of criminal charges. That blows my mind in the context of de Blasio making this his central platform. But there have been, nonetheless, some inspiring examples of activism around this. Absolutely. And, you know, we talk a lot about the importance of people fitting into new neighborhoods, getting to know their neighbors and talking to the people around them. And I think that that does start with good morning and that does start with, you know, looking after your neighbor's cat. But I do want to go beyond those things. And I think that people are going beyond those sort of daily interactions to more meaningful activist oriented interactions. We see that with the Crown Heights Tenant Union. I mean, this is a very strong effort that's been going for many years now. And it's a place where anyone who's trying to stay in their home, that's a new arrival from another neighborhood that they were pushed out of, or someone who's lived in the neighborhood for 30 years, can come together once a month, talk through the issues in their building, and find actions to help them out. And I talked to a few people from the Crown Heights Tennis Union meeting uh, just a few weeks ago. What we do, uh, what the Crown Heights Tennis Union believe is that a tenant is a tenant. It doesn't matter if you are a longstanding tenant, I've been here 38 years, or you've been here six months. We embrace all tenants. So we organize building by building, block by block, but we embrace everyone, even those outside of Crown Heights can come to our union meetings. And, you know, that comes from a, a serious power analysis, too. It's not just uh, lovey-dovey, but that, that's certainly part of who we are. But it's also, you know, a serious power analysis because long-term black working-class tenants are being pushed out. And then the same landlord turns around and illegally overcharges new tenants. So it's a cycle of displacement and overcharge. So, you know, in a very real and material way, we, we need to unite and fight. Um, it's the only way we can break this cycle. I find what they had to say really inspiring because... You know, when we started this process, I think I personally had a lot more faith in changing policy. And you can point to things in the rent regulation laws that could be very helpful. But I understand the mountain it is to get that done in the New York State Senate. And I think that there are much more actionable, much more attainable steps that we can take together as citizens forming like the Tenants Union. And I think that the hurdle there is the reality that so many people that are feeling pinched are working 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 hours a day in a week, and they're raising kids. And to find the energy and the will to get to that tenant union meeting at 7 p.m. after a long day is not to be underestimated, but it's a commitment that has to be made in one's own self-interest and in, in, in preservation of your home and your family's life. It's something we, we, we really have heard time and again from listeners is I want to be engaged. It's how do I add this on top of my life already? Uh, and so there is something inspiring from those people who are at the Tenants Union. Maybe they can all tell us how, how we find time to add this to our lives already. We also want to talk about the bigger picture here, right? So Karen Frillman, our editor and executive producer who has guided us through this project, that's where you've been focused throughout is that is that there's something larger than housing and then gentrification at play. The thing that has struck me as I've now walked through a number of Brooklyn neighborhoods is in the afternoon, the number of people who are out on the street, which means they are not at work. They're not necessarily in after school programs. They're not necessarily, you know, buffing up their resumes to get into college if they're young kids. They are people who are not engaged in the economy of this city and much of what the city has to offer. And I know the median income in Brooklyn is 46000 which means half of the people live below that household income. So I know those numbers, but when I go out and I see 
how visible it is, I think this is much more than housing. This is about people really meaningfully being part of this society. And the New York economy is going gangbusters. I mean, we have one of the lowest unemployment rates. So I I feel as if in order to solve this housing problem, we also have to look at the job situation and really bringing people into the economy. Nobody made that point clearer to me than this guy I met on the sidewalk in Bushwick, Tony Figueroa, who is in his 70s and was fixing the crack in his sidewalk. I am in the, in the best time of my life. <laughs> he is like one of the happiest people that I've met in the last year. And he says, I have everything. I said, how did you get everything? And he worked as a meat processor for Hebrew National. I, I used to make bologna, salami, hot dogs. He came from Mexico. I get in here with a visa. And then after, after the visa, my boss, Hebrew National, they gave me contract to, to get my residence. And uh, I, I get my residence. And the second second favor they gave me was my, my citizenship. I'm an American citizen. He was able to buy his home, and now his five daughters live in the second and third floors above him. He's been offered more than a million dollars for his home. He says, this does not have to do with money. I have everything. And I think, you know, he was able to really get a piece of the American dream because this company, he became a partner in it. You know, he made their salami, and they paid him, and he has a pension. What, what I need is only many years to live. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> and God bless America, and God bless social security. Okay. And that is what it's going to take to help people who are living in this city have a way in. So we'll end with hearing more from our listeners. We've been hearing from you throughout this episode, throughout all of these episodes. And I think what is useful for us to understand is that we all can engage somewhere. And it starts by engaging in and of itself in the way the DW has said. Rebecca and I, we were at uh, the Brooklyn Children's Museum a couple of weeks ago, and we met a family that was struggling with this. Rebecca, you want to tell us about that family? So we met this great family from Canarsie, a lovely couple with two kids, so engaged with their family, so much love. And they came over and, and the mother was talking about how guilty she feels that she's not more involved in her tenants association or her that she's not more organized. And Kai, you said, yeah, but you're here. You are here with your family and you are engaged with us now talking about this. And I thought that that was so important to make that point to her and also to our listeners. The point that we want people to take away from from this series is that you can engage. You can have the conversation on your sidewalk at the Brooklyn Museum, at the grocery store, you know, not in depth, probably at the grocery store. But the point is, is that you don't have to formally organize in a kind of conventional or traditional activist way, although that is great as well. But if you do not have literally, physically, the time, don't feel guilty, engage in different ways. You and your friends over dinner can begin to organize your community. Start somewhere. Don't just be guilty. Don't just be angry. Start somewhere. And here's some of our listeners who have started the conversation. 
Yeah, is racism playing a role in gentrification? Well, gentrification in and of itself is about socioeconomics, in my opinion. And racism, one definition of it can be those in a higher position projecting their power on those in a lower position. But uh, I believe at its core, the gentrification that is going through New York now, it is entirely more about green and not green people. It's more about money than it is about um, putting, you know, down brown or African-American or Caribbean-American people. And um, as long as that is going to be the God at the end of the day, you know, the almighty dollar, it won't change. I just want to say I own a few homes in Bed-Stuy, and I was actually one of the first landlords who rented to a white couple on uh, Madison Street, which is where I own a home. And uh, this was a few years ago. And one of the things that my neighbors said to me, you know, after they'd been there for about six, seven months, they said, your tenants walk by as though we're invisible. Now, the one thing that I have to say, you know, I don't know that a lot of white people, when they move in, is it that they feel that they are actually bettering the neighborhood? Because I will say, the blocks that I've lived on on Bed-Stuy were already beautiful blocks. Wasn't it so white families came in and suddenly made the blocks beautiful? These were homes that were owned by uh, middle-class families. The homes were very well kept. So it's not as though you made the block beautiful. Um, and I don't know exactly where the attitude came from, but there was this attitude that... You know, I had to actually go to the tenants and say, look, these are older people, and in the black community, people say hi. You know, they say, good morning, ma'am, good evening, ma'am. I said, you walking by these people, if ever anything were to happen to you on the block, who would you turn to for help? You really have to make an effort to know your neighbors. I think that racism is playing a role in gentrification as far as the agenda of white supremacy and the inability for people of color to get an equal opportunity to grow and develop within their own communities. Um, I think that it's just a microcosm of what is actually taking place all over the globe. Peace. There Goes the Neighborhood is a production of WNYC Studios and The Nation magazine. It's recorded and mixed by me, Casey Means. Sean Carlson is our researcher. Our associate producer is Amy Eason. Bridget Bergen and Janet Babin contributed recordings to this episode. Terrence Blanchard composed our theme music. Thanks to our digital team, including Lee Hill, Delaney Simmons, Kevin France, Frank Reynolds, and Annie Shields. D.W. Gibson, Jim O'Grady, Kai Wright, and Rebecca Carroll all contributed to the reporting and producing of this podcast. Our editor and executive producer is Karen Grillman. Support for There Goes the Neighborhood has been provided by the Ford Foundation, Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, the New York Community Trust, and the Economic Hardship Reporting Project.